The best way to recover from playing sports is a long, luxurious night's sleep. Our friends at Mattress Firm have thousands of stores and prices in your ballpark. It's a game-winning combination, and it's a team that's impossible not to cheer for. Mattress Firm is hooking up listeners with 10% off when you visit mattressfirm.com slash podcast and plug in the code PODCAST10. Score 10 out of 10 on a brand new bed by taking 10% off with the code PODCAST10 at mattressfirm.com slash podcast. Support for today's show also comes from MyBookie. Trust me, guys, they are your best bet this season. They've been in business for years, have great reviews online, and their mobile site is easy to use. Not to mention they have in-game live betting and the most rewarding player perks in the business. Join now and MyBookie will match your deposit dollar for dollar. Use the promo code MLB to activate the offer. Visit MyBookie online today. That's M-Y-B-O-O-K-I-E. And don't forget to use promo code MLB when creating your account to claim the bonus. You play, you win, you get paid. gotta be cruel to be kind in the right measure this is the ringer mlb show i am your host michael bauman and i'm a staff writer at the ringer as always we are proud to be part of the ringer podcast network and the ringer.com where today is pizza day i'd like to take this opportunity to direct you to all of our pizza uh, derived content on the ringer.com i wrote about john schnatter's weird rise and fall as ceo and founder of papa john's and other writers actually wrote about pizza instead of late capitalism we have andrew grotadaro who put together a bracket of great moments in pizza culture uh, history kate nibs wrote about the weird pickled crap that chicagoans eat on pizza and we've got a staff list of our favorite pizza joints and uh, pizza to vendors shout out to mikey's late night slice of columbus ohio and massos of gibbsboro new jersey i miss you both every single day uh, so there's something for everybody uh, on pizza day at the ringer.com and congratulations also picking up a story that mark titus and i talked about last week to the honolulu little league on their world little league world series title uh usa usa but now it's time to start this week's show and this week's show starts as every show does with zach Cram. All right, we start the show, as always, with noted fantasy baseball scumbag, Zach Cram. Zach, welcome back to the show. I'm sorry I beat you 8-2 last week. I, I don't know what you're upset about. Uh, I don't know. Maybe I'm upset that I lost 8-2 while I'm fighting for a playoff spot. Um, although I'm up 4 nothing on Katie Baker after one day of this week's matchup. So I hope that the other teams will beat beat each other up i'm still holding on to the last playoff spot before the postseason in our league starts tomorrow which accidentally turned into a decent segue for what we're going to talk about we're going to talk about the eight distinct playoff races in major league baseball this was your idea and a good one so we're doing it uh and we're going to draft them one through eight from what was the the way you worded it was it most to least interesting was it favorite to least favorite or how, how are we doing this i think uh how- where we think we'll end up the closest to the furthest apart between uh, the team that wins said race and the runner-up. So I'm going to let you go first. One, because you won at Fantasy Baseball last week. Two, because I'm sort of afraid of one of these races, and I I want you to to take it first so I don't have to think about it. So I think uh, we say eight distinct races because nobody really cares about the difference between the first and second wildcard teams, so we're lumping those together. And I think 
if I were to pick the race that I think will end up closest, I would take the National League wildcard race. Yes. Partially just because there are so many teams, it increases the odds of a close finish, if not a tie. Uh, you'll have the NL East runner-up. You'll have two teams from the NL Central, two teams from the NL West. And I think that just makes this race more enjoyable, too. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, the joy of the a multi-front race at the end where you have teams playing interdivisional or even interdivisional matchups and they all matter, whether it's the Diamondbacks playing the Rockies soon or a couple weeks ago when the Cardinals were playing the Nationals and the race mattered to both teams. I think because you have so much crisscrossing there, that'll make for the most thrilling race down the stretch. And the closest, I'm still holding out hope for a tie. Yeah, th- I was hoping you would pick this first because it's so complicated. It I'm kind of afraid of it. You know, like just looking at at all the different ways this thing could could turn out. It's almost it's so wide open. It's almost hard to make sense of because, like you said, you got the National League East runner up, the the Cardinals, Brewers, every team from the National League West almost, and we've sort of shed a couple of the hangers on off the back of the pack in in the past week or two. You know, I think we're finally ready to bury the Washington Nationals, the Giants, the Pirates are all but out of the. The playoff picture at this point and even so there's still three teams chasing the cardinals and the brewers who occupy those two spots right now or the braves could get sucked back in or uh the diamondbacks could get sucked back in or even it's not out of the question that the cubs could could wind up getting pulled back into this uh into this battle royale so it, i mean i think this is most likely to end up in a tie just because there are so many teams so close but it's god knows which two of those teams are going to wind up being the last team standing. Yeah, right now, if you just look at the number of losses each team has, the Cardinals have 58, the Brewers have 59, the Rockies have 60, and the Phillies and Dodgers have 61. So while those differences matter, it's such a small margin at this point with still roughly 30 games left that that order could completely flip by next week and I wouldn't be surprised. All right, I'm going to go with the National League West, which includes three of the... 35 teams that are still in it for the National League wildcard. Um, this one, in terms of how close it's going to end up, I I might say that this one ends up closer than the National League wildcard uh, just because what feels like the heavy favorite, the Dodgers, are in third place right now. And in order to have a particularly close finish, it helps to have the strongest team uh, doing the chasing. So... You know, even after trading for Manny Machado, they they haven't really overhauled the Rockies. They haven't over, overhauled the Diamondbacks. Um, the Rockies took a took a tough loss last night in Anaheim. Um, I I want to be more confident that, that the Dodgers uh, are going to uh, end up at the top of the divisional standings by the end of the year. But you know, at this point, like I, if they haven't pulled away yet, I don't know when they're going to. They're they're really running out of time. They have obviously struggled of late, particularly in the bullpen. But I think the reason I had this number two on my board too, as you said, is it's also just a three-team race. So like with the NL East or the AL East, for instance, yes, there are only two teams involved, so it could end up being close. But also all it takes is a losing streak from one of those teams or like if the Braves sweep the Phillies the next time they play, then that race is all but over. Whereas in the NL West, you still have the chance that one team could fall out and it'll still be a fun race. Yeah. And another thing that makes this one interesting is the Rockies are sort of 
I mean, they they are Ben and I have talked about this this phenomenon numerous times on the podcast, but they're they sort of feel fluky, um, and the underlying numbers look fluky, and they've got all there are all sorts of reasons why they shouldn't be this close, but it's they're here, you know, and we're at a point in the season with only five weeks left that we have to treat them as as a legitimate con- contender for the division, just because anything can happen over the uh, the next five weeks. Um, and in that in-between land between the Dodgers and the Rockies are the Diamondbacks who are very talented, have Zach Greinke and Patrick Corbin and all sorts. And Clay Buckholz is still posting a 225 ERA uh, somehow. Um, and they there's all these things are going right for them. But, you know, Robbie Ray has not been himself. Um, some of the, the relievers that they brought over have been inconsistent. Um, you know, AJ Pollock's been on, on and off the DL. A lot of the... They still have holes in their lineup. Um, it's they're a hard team to pin down. You know, on their day, they are every bit a match for the Dodgers. And when stuff isn't going right, then they could fall out of the out of the race really quickly. So I think they there's a just a ton of variability for the Diamondbacks, which makes them an in, intriguing division leader, somebody who's dangerous but also far from certain themselves. So. Uh, unless you have anything more to say about the National League West, we can move along. I think that leads to another team that I think currently leads the division and could be dangerous, but that depends on a lot of pieces fitting together. Uh, my next pick is the National League East, where right now the Braves lead Philadelphia by three and a half, Washington by eight. We can probably count the Nationals out of it by this point. Uh, the Phillies have obviously been struggling lately since sweeping the Marlins at the start of the month. They have a record of 7-13. and 13. They haven't won a series that includes losses to the Padres and the Mets. So given the current trajectory, I think this race could end up six or seven games. But I think Philly has a couple things in its favor. First, they play Atlanta seven times at the end of the season. So go five and two in those games, and the deficit is made up. Even beyond that, they have an easier schedule than Atlanta over the rest of the season. And this is kind of hard to forecast, but Philadelphia seems like the kind of team that will benefit greatly from the September roster expansion when instead of 25 men on the active roster, teams can have 40. And just the way Philadelphia has used its bullpen this year and has used its AAA bullpen to shuttle guys back and forth and the way Gabe Kapler has shown himself to be a a forward thinker, I can sort of see Philly carrying 18 relievers in September and being able to gain advantages and matchups at the end of games. So I had the NL East race all the way down at five uh, because, and this depends, like you said, it's it's essentially a two-team race right now. Um, and it depends entirely on your read on the Phillies. I think the Braves are sort of, you know, they're young and they, again, have a lot of variability with them, but this is really about whether or not the Phillies can overhaul what's expanded to a three and a half game deficit. And, you know, I agree that they're going to benefit from the expanded rosters, but the problem, I mean, the bullpen hasn't been awesome. Um but the the problem is the defense, really. And Ben and I are going to talk about this extensively in the next segment, so I don't want to go overboard and end up repeating myself. But it's not, you know, you can use essentially an unlimited, you know, you if, if you're carrying 18 pitchers, you can use 18 pitchers. The problem is they need to, the Phillies ideally would be able to go offense, defense, like a team at the end of a basketball game, you know, to be able to shuttle Reese Hoskins and Roman Quinn in and out of the lineup, depending on, on what their needs are. And 
they're not going to be able to do that. And the defense has been just terrible. I think that, and more than that, you know, the, the seven games left against the Braves are five and seven against Atlanta. You know, I don't know how much of an advantage that's going to be. Obviously it's an opportunity, but the reason they're in this predicament right now is they haven't played all that well against the Braves and, you know, and adding Jose Bautista probably isn't going to be the thing that gets them over the line. So I don't know if this, this comparison is going to make a ton of sense to people who don't watch as much cycling as I do, but this feels like it, at the end of a, a climb up a mountain, you know, you got two cyclists and they're, they've stayed together the entire race and you can tell that just one is getting tired faster than the other. And you could just sort of see him come unhooked and then just drop all the way back towards the pack. And that's sort of the the vibe I get out of the Phillies right now. I think you know it's been a great season, a great building block for, uh, for 2019 and you know they weren't really supposed to be in the race this late anyway you know i think gabe kapler's answered a lot of the questions that we had about him as a manager but i just don't see them hanging on i think you know i and we can we can go into one of the other divisions but um i don't have the nl central next but i had them up i had the nl central above the nl east because i i have more faith in the Brewers and the Cardinals to to pull back that that lead uh, against the Cubs, even though it's a little bit bigger right now than the the lead in the, the NL East. I think it's possible uh, the the Nationals don't catch the Braves, but they catch the Phillies. Um, so I I guess that's just you know if if you believe in the Phillies and this is a really interesting race, I I sort of see them coming unhooked a little bit. So who do you have next? Uh, my next race, you know, the point you made about the Phillies. Uh, using their expanded roster, their great benefit also applies to the Oakland A's who are, I would say, less married to the traditional starter than any team except for Tampa Bay. And, you know, the Oakland A's sort of have uh, Trevor Cahill and Sean Manaya and then pray for rain. And last night's game where the Astros got down four runs and then scored 11 unanswered. And like, it was just we haven't seen many of these games recently from the Astros just because one or, you know, Altuve has been hurt or Springer has been hurt or Correa has been hurt or, it, it, you know, Reddick's been slumping and it's just been one thing or the other. And they haven't really put the entire lineup together, but when they do it, they can just put together a seven run inning at the drop of the hat at any point. And I think that offense that one through nine might be the biggest, you know, it's just, they're never going to be out of a competitive game. They're never going to be so far behind that they, that some, you know, on some level that, uh, they don't have the capacity to come back. And we saw that last night where they went down huge early and then came back and wound up blowing out Oakland. Um, but that said, you know, Bob Melvin's done a great job of, of finding the right pitcher for the right situation, being able to call up more pitchers. You know, we saw Daniel Magden uh, uh, pitching out of the, the bullpen last night, just, you know, knowing he's got guys who can, who could suck up innings when they're behind and sort of triage to get Trinan and Trevino and Familia and Fernando Rodney into the highest leverage situations. And I think he's going to get a lot out of that bullpen. And, you know, I don't know that Oakland, uh, comes all the way back or even gets any closer than they are right now at two and a half games. And I think the Mariners are, are far enough back out of it that they're sort of out of it. But I think the, that Oakland could keep it close. Um, and I think they're probably going to wind up winning the uh, the second wildcard spot. Um, yeah, This is the the race. And I don't know if, if this is just personally because uh, I spent so much time in Houston and have been around all these teams so much or because I watch baseball late at night and tend to watch a lot of West Coast teams and there are fewer West Coast teams uh, out there. So I've seen these teams a lot, but 
the the A's, the the Mariners and the Astros, I think are all really interesting teams. I think the Astros are evolving into a really interesting bad guy having, uh, you know, had this very likable up and coming team uh, win the World Series last year. And now, you know, they're already starting to get like the the Chicago 2016 Chicago Cubs. Uh, you know, we're kind of sick of these guys now. Um, and I, I think they could really transition well into being a really good narrative heel. I think that they've got a lot of players who would really lean into that. And these are a lot, it's three fun teams, um, three teams that are really fun to watch. I would love this race to be close all the way down to the wire. I think Oakland will keep it close, but it might just be damage, damage limitation and uh, packing in for the wild card at this point. Yeah. I have the AOS lower on my list. Uh, even before the game last night, I think the injury to Sean Manaya could be really concerning for Oakland. Uh, the extent of that injury isn't known right now. All we know is he's being evaluated by Dr. Neil Elatrash, which is a dangerous set of words for any starting pitcher. I also think it's somewhat simplistic to say that the Astros are undefeated since Jose Altuve returned, but it really does speak to a bit of what was ailing them during the recent slump. They just weren't healthy between Springer and Correa and Altuve all being hurt. They were all finally back in the lineup last night. Chris Davinsky's coming back soon. Brian McCann's coming back soon. So within a week, basically, they'll be at full strength besides Lance McCullers. And I think they have the rotation depth to survive his absence. I've been saying all season that Houston is the most talented team in baseball. I've certainly written about it a decent amount. And last week, uh, you know, we started talking in Slack, is is there reason for concern? And ever since we started talking about that, Houston hasn't lost a game. So it certainly wouldn't surprise me if Oakland keeps us somewhat close, but I'd be, I think, more surprised if this is tied or within a game or two by the end of September. Um, The next race on my list is perhaps the same way given that the top team looks more talented than the rest but next on my list is the National League Central partly because again there are two teams chasing the Cubs and also because I don't still believe in the Cubs rotation Cole Hamels has been a revelation since coming over at the trade deadline which is Somewhat of a surprise. I wasn't expecting it, given how inconsistent he was yeah, in he Texas. Looked washed. I mean, we could. It looked like the end, but he's been incredible, and that's obviously much needed for a team that was expecting a lot more out of Jose Quintana. That was expecting more out of you, Darvish, who now appears to be shut down for the season. Tyler Chatwood is on the disabled list now, but it's unclear how much of a loss that is for the Cubs pitching staff. Uh, so. While Cole Hamels has been great, Chicago still has enough of a a large question mark that if the Cardinals stay hot or the Brewers bullpen bounces back, then they'll be able to make a race of it come September. Yeah, I, you know, this reading sort of like the the American League West is that feels right to me. Um, I've got more faith, I think, in the the Cardinals and the Brewers as, as chasing teams than I certainly do in the Phillies. And I think the, uh, I think the Cubs, for the reasons you outlined, just you know, they've got so many good players, but it, you know they haven't really all clicked at the same time. Uh, they, I don't, you know, vul- if I say vulnerable, that's going to make it sound like it's worse than it actually is. But I, you know, I think that there is more potential for them to be caught than uh, than Houston because I think Houston's going to play better down the stretch. So, um, and again, this this one has a lot of the same pieces as the that 
ridiculous National League wildcard race. So now we're getting into really kind of boring territory, right? Uh, I have the the American League wildcard next. Uh, it looks like the Yankees might be on a slide. Um, and I guess they're not now. Uh, they're, they're completely better. They're four and a half games up on Oakland and Oakland is four and a half games up on Seattle. Uh, that's pretty well spaced out for a, a three team race that is real that, you know, the three teams can almost barely see each other at this point. Do you think Seattle has a realistic chance at catching Oakland? I think back to just a month ago when we talked about, I think this race around the all-star break and how, oh, Oakland was kind of potentially making it interesting and that would be great because it's the one AL race down the stretch and now the narrative has completely flipped just because of how hot Oakland has been now it's can Seattle catch Oakland and make it interesting yeah and I think you know Seattle is sort of it's one of those teams that's obviously outplaying its run differential by a ton like the and you know, the regression that we expected for the Rockies that hasn't come, that is starting to come for the Phillies has come and gone for Seattle at this point. Um, no, I, you know, I sort of think they're out of it. And I think, you know, it feels like they're out of it in a way that, that even the, you know, the Phillies are still hanging on, even though their, uh, their gap to the closest playoff spot is, uh, only a, a game or two closer than, uh, than Seattle's right now. It just, it sort of feels like they're out of bullets. And then, you know, Marco Gonzalez going on the DL, um, they could ill afford to lose any pitchers, you know, and you know, I guess you'd rather lose Gonzalez and James Paxton. Um, although Paxton is on the DL now, but is going to come back for this weekend's game. So it just, you know, the state of Seattle's pitching all starting pitching, at least, you know, all the things that we, that we really thought were going to um, undermine this team's playoff chase. They sort of have. So I think they're, they're not out of it, but I'd feel a whole lot better about them at three games back than four and a half, just because you know anything can happen in one weekend series. We saw this happen when Seattle swept Houston in Houston, but if you're farther back than that, we're getting to a point in the season where it's tough to make up that much ground. I agree uh, much to my chagrin because I think Seattle is a fun team, but I actually had them ranked lower on my list. I would have picked, and I guess my next pick will be the American League East. Even though there's a larger gap there after losing an air-filled game against the White Sox last night, the Yankees are six and a half back of Boston. But I think they have a slim chance of actually making the race interesting down the stretch. First is the schedule, which I know I keep harping on, but I, I can't stop looking at the strength of schedule. Boston still has series against Atlanta and Cleveland and Houston down the stretch. Maybe they drop two games because of that schedule. And then they also play the Yankees six times, which if you watch the last series between these teams would hint at Boston really being able to clinch the division during that stretch. But what if you know the Yankees could win a couple games, Chris Sale is still hurt, and like with Houston, the Yankees are starting to get healthy. Uh, Gary Sanchez and Didi Gregorius should be back by next week's road trip when they go out west to face Oakland and Seattle. And I think for as wonderful as the Yankees' offense has been overall this year, they're still on pace to either tie or come close to the all-time home run record. They've been really inconsistent in recent weeks, because of these injuries, starting players like Ronald Torres and Shane Robinson and Austin Romine, who are cromulent backups, but put all three of those guys in the same lineup, and all of a sudden, it's like the Marlins. And I think 
once the Yankees regain some health, they could potentially make noise down the stretch. I wouldn't count on it, certainly. I think according to like fan graphs, it's only a 10% chance, but that's not nothing. And it was like 2% a week ago. So things could continue to tighten if Boston has one more bad series. So here are the project kind of predictions that get you they don't get you in trouble, but they get people in your mentions is when you write off a team that's six and a half games back and they come back. Like it's not out of the question uh, that the Yankees could could claw back and, and make this into an interesting race with the Red Sox. But if that happens, it's going to be remarkable. Like if that happens, we'll cover it. I'm sure somebody will write a book about it. You know, some of the uh, David Halberstam's summer 49, which is one of the best baseball books ever written is about, you know, is about a, a scenario with a close playoff race between uh, the Yankees and the Red Sox. And it will be summer of 49-ish if the Yankees come all the way back. I So the question marks I have about the Yankees are, you know, Aaron Judge is still not swinging a bat. Um, you know, Gary Sanchez and uh, Didi Gregorius are, are sort of on the road back to, to playing. Um, but if Judge, you know, this is not the same team with Judge in the lineup versus out of the lineup. And that uncertainty around Judge, who was supposed to be pretty close to back by now, um, and again, is still not even swinging, that uncertainty favors a closer wildcard race than a closer uh, divisional race, uh, which, again, you know, the A's are four and a half games back, the Yankees are six and a half games back, and the Red Sox. So that race is closer to begin with. So that's why I'd rank the wildcard above the East. I think the East is done. If I'm wrong about that, I will be very excited to to uh, discuss that and write about it and talk about it and uh, and all that when it happens. But I just don't see it right now. Well, I'm glad we're doing this now then because both of us could look very foolish in a week and a half in a span where Oakland plays Seattle and the Yankees play Seattle and the Yankees play Oakland to say nothing of all the National League teams we talked about beating each other up. Uh, you know, who knows what the races could look like and if we would draft teams differently in a couple weeks time but uh this leaves yeah. the al central for the end and i can't imagine that one getting any tighter pass that yeah they're by far the last on my draft board i think the most interesting uh part about the al central at this point is whether they will end up as the worst division ever one thing i think maybe the only interesting thing to note about cleveland at this point in terms of setting them up for the playoffs is I picked Cleveland to win the World Series before the season started. I think if Trevor Bauer were healthy, I might pick them to win it again in October. But if you look at their record this year, they are 38-19 and 19 against fellow AL Central clubs, and they are one game below 500 against all other teams. So I, I think Cleveland is very talented, but I have no idea how good they actually are. Right. I think Cleveland has... Lindor and Ramirez, who are both having MVP-type seasons. Corey Kluber is one of the top five pitchers in baseball and is pitching like it. Uh, Bauer, when he's healthy, is having a career year, the kind of year that would get him some Cy Young votes. Apart from that, I don't know how good this team is. This really just feels like a an okay team that's getting floated by a bad division. And the uh, how good, you know, the, the winning streak last year and the World Series appearance a year before that has sort of um, put... Cleveland up in a position where where we sort of take for granted that they're actually good and as long as they're winning the division then you know there's no reason to, to really interrogate all that much having Kluber and if they get Bauer back and plus Carrasco and all the bullpen changes they've made they'll be dangerous in a short series I don't 
and here's the other thing. The other reason I wouldn't make them a, a, a World Series favorite, uh, even if Bauer does come back, is the American League bracket's going to be so much harder than the National League bracket. I think the if if I had to pick one team to win the World Series, I'd probably pick the Cubs just because I think they're the most likely team to actually make it to the World Series to get through that uh, the first two rounds of the playoffs. Because you know we've seen on you know the Red Sox or the or the Astros are better, but they're going to have a much harder time of getting through. So. You know, we're sort of getting ahead of ourselves there, but you have to find something to make the AL Central race interesting because it hasn't been since, oh, first or second week of May. Well, the rest of the way, Cleveland still has series against Minnesota, Kansas City, Detroit, Chicago, Chicago, Kansas City. So they will have plenty more time to beat up on the rest of the AL Central. And I think looking at the results of our picks this in this draft, we had National League picks in the top three spots and then also number five. So maybe this is just another way of saying what we've been saying all season, that the National League is more interesting, but it is laid out like this, uh, really heavily tilted in one direction and could inform our viewing habits the rest of the way. If you're going to, I'm probably going to do another power rankings post in the, in the next week or two, but uh, if you had to, to power rank the teams, how far would you go down before you got to a National League team? Is this current power ranking or? Yeah, like, right now. I think I would put the Cubs at, it depends how you feel about Cleveland. I, I think the Yankees, Astros, Red Sox, and Athletics would be probably the top four in some order, and then maybe the Cubs fifth, and then Cleveland, and then, see, I think the Dodgers are the most talented team in the National League, but it feels weird to hypothetically put them in a, a power ranking ahead of teams they currently trail in the division wildcard race. It's a mess. Well, the Dodgers right now. Dodgers are are eighth in the National League. They're tied for, or sorry, tied for seventh. I think you could defend putting the five American League playoffs teams in the top five spots in a, in a power rankings. I probably wouldn't. I'd probably have uh, have the Cubs ahead of one of Oakland or Cleveland, but I think it would be an interesting case to make. Um, well, I can't wait to read it. Yeah. Uh, I hate doing this. I can't believe I just volunteered to to do another one. Um, one thing I do not hate doing is talking to you, Zach Cram. It's been a pleasure as always. Now uh, we're going to talk to Ben Lindbergh after these messages. But for right now, thanks for coming on. Now get the hell off my podcast. Thank you. Most Americans don't have a will, but it's not like the old days when you had to pay an attorney by the hour to draft your will. Today, you can join the more than 1 million people who've used LegalZoom for their estate planning needs. This is the last week of National Make-A-Will Month at LegalZoom, but don't worry, you still have time to take control of your family and assets with a will or living trust. Not sure which is right for you? Not a problem. LegalZoom has a vast network of independent attorneys who can advise you on what's best for you and your family. And because LegalZoom isn't a law firm, you never have to worry about a lawyer's expensive billable hours adding up. Make things much easier on your family when you're gone and check out LegalZoom's last will and living trust estate plans right now during the final week of National Make-A-Will Month at LegalZoom.com. And to receive special savings, be sure to enter promo code MLB in the referral box at checkout. That's promo code MLB only on LegalZoom.com, where life meets legal. Ringer MLB Show is also brought to you by Burrow. 
Is there anything harder to move than a sofa? I've been through about a half a dozen moves and it's tough to think of anything. Maybe an iron vault full of bees if you've got one of those. But sofas are bulky, they're hard to take apart, hard to put back together, more fragile in transit than you might think. But Burrow is changing the game with a fully customizable sofa that's easy to move and built to last. Modular design means your chair can become a love seat and your love seat can become a sofa simply by adding one section at a time. And it's easy to move in and out of any space. Everything is personalized just to you. The arm height, sofa color, leg material, and the size. Burrow is the only sofa that grows with you and actually fits with your life. Now, I've got a Red Burrow love seat. It's got it's in a simple modern style that I like. And after spending hours assembling our last sofa, it took my wife and me maybe 10 minutes to put the whole thing together. Now, it's a wonderful place to sit and spend your time eating dinner or watching baseball on TV. It's a very nice thing to have in your living room. And you could have one for yourself. Get $75 off your Burrow sofa at burrow.com slash MLB. That's B-U-R-R-O-W.com slash MLB for $75 off. Burrow, furniture that's fit for modern life at home. All right, so we're back with the man, the myth, the Lindbergh. Ben Lindbergh is is joining the podcast once again. We're going to talk about math, sort yes. of. Yeah, let's aim to strike the right tone. Let's go for nerdy, but still accessible. Yeah, you know, you and I try hard to be accessible, but this is <laughs> one where we're we're gonna get we don't really get succeed. <laughs> no, but we're gonna get back to our roots. I think yeah. and not really apologize for <laughs> for being a little bit abstruse. So mm-hmm. there's been a lot of uh, conversation about war, the catch-all. Uh, um, Overall player value estimator, which comes, of course, in in three common flavors, one by Fangraphs, one by Baseball Reference, and then Warp, which is uh, Baseball Prospectus's uh, value estimator. And I think there's an acknowledgement, like it's it it was the bogeyman of the anti-stack crowd uh, maybe a decade ago because to a certain extent, like there were elements of it that were either actually a black box and not public and proprietary or just the math was so complicated it's difficult to understand like i'm good at math i couldn't calculate war you know Mm -hmm. um but i I think there's an acknowledgement now that it is the way i've always described it is it's a a roller and not a brush that it's good for making you know broad long large sample uh comparisons between players or to to judge the difference between one era and another but you know it gets a little bit imprecise and if you're gonna mm-hmm. really drill down into um into player value in a specific season uh you know there are so many moving parts you really have to look at the components if you want to get a really accurate picture of yeah. what a player's doing and to say nothing of there's the uh my big argument that I keep coming back to is just because a formula is objective and treats everything the same way doesn't mean that it it doesn't have its decision making process informed by certain people's biases. So, it, like there are certain it, we were arguing off air about uh, the difference between Fangraphs War and uh, and Baseball Prospectus War using fit versus runs allowed, uh, mm-hmm. and that's that's a value judgment that you know I am a runs allowed person rather than an ERA estimator person if you're going to use an ERA estimator I'd rather use the one that baseball prospectus uses rather than the one that fangraphs uses so there it's all of this is by way of saying that war as uh, a statistic is useful but not perfect I I had Mm -hmm. a a professor who said um, a stats professor who said all models are wrong some models are useful and that's sort of the the way I view this but war is 
fucking up nowadays. <laughs> uh, and I, I think the if we're going to bring this back to a real world baseball example, the Philadelphia Phillies, uh, Aaron Nola is having an outstanding season. I think he's going to finish top three in, in uh, National League Cy Young voting. He outdueled Max Scherzer last week. They're facing off again tonight. Uh, watch that if you have any interest in baseball whatsoever, because the last one was spectacular. This one probably will be too. But he's pitching in front of a defense that, I mean... It's it's a half a roster of first basemen. We use bad a lot. Yeah. And I've you know, it's one of those words that we overuse that I wish we wouldn't to, so we could <laughs> really wind up and, and take a big swing at what this Phillies I mean, it's not the first baseman. Like it, it is it's it's playing Reese Hoskins in center field. It's Michael Franco has good hands and a good arm, but no range. And they're playing him against or next to a series of shortstops who aren't really shortstops anymore. You know, Scott Kingery was never a shortstop as Drupal Cabrera hasn't been a shortstop in five years. Um, and the result of this is uh, baseball references war estimates the expected run environment of that a pitcher uh, pitches in. And that has to do with league factors, park factors, and defense. And Philadelphia's defense is so bad. And Aaron Nola has been so good at preventing. He's got a low BABIP. He hasn't allowed an unearned run this season. He's so good at run prevention, or he's gotten so lucky based on the horrible run prevention environment that he's pitching into that uh, baseball reference with a month left in the season thinks that Nola is worth 8.9 wins above replacement, which would be the sixth best season by a pitcher since the year 2000. Um, and this has caused all sorts of controversy. And, you know, Tom Tango, who works for Major League Baseball now, one of the godfathers of sabermetrics, wrote about this yesterday. Um, and it it lays bare a lot of things like these these interlocking factors that you have to go in, you know, go in and choose um to use runs allowed versus DRA, for instance, you know, choose mm-hmm. how you're going to evaluate defense, how these defensive metrics work, what their blind spots are. And it just, it, it feels like baseball is sort of confounding the assumptions that we made five or six years ago when, when these metrics gained mainstream popularity were the assumptions that we made 10, 15 years ago when they were designed in the first place. So mm-hmm. I've, delivered several minutes <laughs> of throat clearing of now war. yeah so <laughs> yeah thoughts <laughs> so you mentioned tango and tango's line that he often uses is that war or warp they're just frameworks they are ways of weighing various contributions against other contributions so you have this system set up where you say well we want to know how much a player is worth so here's how much he was worth on offense and here's how much he was worth on defense and here's how much he was worth on the bases and I think we can all agree with the basic idea that those things are all worth something. So we want to take them all into account. And it's but, that that part is controversial, but it, it shouldn't be. It's just trying right. to, to paint a total picture of a player's value. And if you're not going to use war, but you're going to try to decide who the, the most valuable player is, you're doing that math in your head. And this mm-hmm. is just letting somebody else do the math for you. But yeah. continue. And so each of those components comes with some degree of measurement error or some bias or some decision that someone made at some point that this is how we're going to measure this thing. And that part, I think, is imperfect and often gets improved, which I think dismays a lot of people because they will see someone's war or warp change retroactively. And then what can we trust in this universe if someone's past season war cannot be counted on to stay the same forever? So it's an obstacle, I think, for the sabermetric community from a PR standpoint 
in that you do have several flavors of this one stat. And so it's easy for people to take cheap shots and say, well, they can't even agree on what the stat is and how the stat works. So why should we pay any attention? And there's truth to that in the sense that if we had the grand unifying theory of baseball and we knew everything with certainty and maybe one day we'll get closer to that point, then we could say that we only need one war. As it is, there are different ways that you can look at these things. And so in that sense, I think it's a feature to have a few different varieties that allow you to pick and choose how you want to evaluate players. But it does lead to some confusion. And then, you know, warp shows the value of a player down to the second decimal point. You don't want to go down to the second decimal point because ultimately that's pretty meaningless. So when we talk about NOLA specifically, I think, again, the basic philosophy here is non-controversial, right? It has an effect on a pitcher's ability to prevent runs, the defense that's behind him. So you have to make some adjustment for that. You can't say it doesn't matter at all. And the Phillies' defense is pretty bad, I think we can say, based on the eye test or based on defensive runs saved, which is what Baseball Reference uses. Only the Orioles rate worse in that stat this year. You can always count on the Orioles to rate worse in any given stat. So I'm trying you have to cut to back on Orioles' pot shots <laughs> after the trade deadline Mal went through. But Yeah, it, it was hard on her. But you have to make some decision here. And so Baseball Reference currently says, well, we know that the Phillies are a bad defensive team. Aaron Nola is a pitcher who pitches in front of that defense. Therefore, we want to help him out a bit. We want to say that, well, his runs prevented should be even more impressive because he's been pitching in front of Reese Hoskins in center field. And that conceptually makes sense, except for the fact that it's possible that the Phillies defense hasn't actually been that bad when Aaron Nola is on the mound. It's bad most of the time. But it may not be bad all of the time and for specific pitchers. If you look at the batting averages on balls in play allowed by Phillies pitchers this year, poor Nick Pavetta is up there with a 339 batting average allowed. Aaron Nola is down there with a 256 batting average allowed on balls in play. And again, the league average is 299 right now. So that's quite a span. And so you can say, well, has Aaron Nola been so amazing? that despite the fact that he's been saddled with poor defense, he has still managed to have all of these balls in play converted into outs at this high rate. It's possible, but it seems more likely that he's just lucked out in the sense that when he's been on the mound, the Phillies defense has been competent or better than competent. And so in effect, the stats are double counting by saying that he's getting extra credit for bad defense when really the defense hasn't been bad behind him specifically. So some of that feels like questions that would jibe or they, they feel like assertions that would jibe with sabermetric consensus in the, the height of the dips era, the def- defense mm-hmm. independent uh, pitching statistics era, yeah. which when we thought that every pitcher's true talent BABIP was 300, but now we right. realize that some pitchers have uh, a greater ability to to allow weak contact and just like looking at the eye test, looking at all the movement on Nola's pitches, his command, his ability to go from that incredible arm side round on his fastball to his curveball to his changeup. And then you contrast that to Nick Pavetta with his arrow straight high <laughs> diet of high fastballs. You would expect batters to hit the ball harder against Pavetta than they would against Nola. So mm-hmm. it it might be double counting, um, but I think that just saying that, and I'm, I'm not saying this is what you were saying either, but yeah. Uh, Discounting that difference in BABIP all the way, you know, counting, chalking that all up to luck uh, is 
I think a little bit reductive. But with that said, you know, DRA tries to uh, to iron out some of these these di- uh, differences and gives gives pitchers a, a little bit of credit for uh, for controlling what happens to the ball after it goes off the bat. Mm-hmm. And they have Nola as the seventh most valuable pitcher, not. Uh, you know, not essentially 1999 Pedro Martinez. <laughs> yeah. And it, even that, you know, we talked about fine differences. He's a 10th of a win uh, within a 10th of a win of Justin Verlander, who's in third place. So we'll call him essentially tied for third best in baseball and DRA attempts to, to go in there and fix a lot of the problems that we alluded to for, for the user, you know, so right. the user doesn't have to go back and say, you know, how bad is the Phillies defense? And, yeah. you know, uh, BP attempts to try to make that judgment for you. So, yeah. So a few points here. So I think, first of all, it's true. We can't just say blanket Babbitt for everyone. Everyone allows 300. There is always an additional layer of complexity here and some imperfect assumption that goes along with that. I think now that we're in this era where we know the speed and trajectory of every batted ball, it can be a little easy to at times convince ourselves that a certain pitcher is the exception to the rule just because now we can say, well, he's allowed weak contact. Therefore, he is a pitcher who allows weak contact as opposed to he's a pitcher who has allowed weak contact in this sample, but he may not for the rest of the season, for instance. Mm-hmm. So when you look at Aaron Nola, he has that 256 BABIP right now. Well, last year he had a 309 and the year before that he had a 334. Now, maybe that wasn't the same Aaron Nola as we're seeing today, but I'm just saying it's, it's hard to assume that what he's doing right now is the true talent Aaron Nola as well. But I think you're right. You look at a guy like Kyle Freeland on the Rockies, who's having a fantastic season, maybe the best season in Rockies franchise history, aside from 2010 Ubaldo. And Kyle Freeland is a guy who has allowed extremely weak contact ever since he came up last year. And so if you just say that Kyle Freeland's getting lucky, you're probably shortchanging him there. And so As you mentioned, Baseball Prospectus's solution to that with DRA, Deserved Run Average, which is the foundation of their pitching value stat, is basically to throw all of this into what's called a a mixed model that tries to account for everything. I mean everything. The umpire, the catchers receiving, the temperature, the ballpark, every factor that could possibly affect a player's performance. It throws it all into this extremely complex model, and it spits out a number that says, well, this guy was responsible for this much value and everything else was something else. And I think it is probably the best and most accurate stat we have. It's also the one that is the biggest black box because we really can't see why it's saying the things that it's saying. We just kind of have to trust it, which is unfortunate, I think, because we would want everything to be easily communicated and clear. But I think we also have to accept that just, yeah. baseball stats have gotten really complex. And this is advanced math that we're using here. And so the layman among us, like us, we're not necessarily going to be able to calculate everything. So to a certain extent, you have to trust the people who can, and they do validate it and they lay out all the evidence. And even the evidence is probably too complicated for us to understand at times, but you have to take it as a good faith effort and say, you know, there's just so much data now that we may have to accept that we're not always going to understand exactly why it says what it says, but it might be right anyway. And if you're listening to this and you want evidence of this, you can go back to the episode we had Harry Pavlidis and Jonathan Judge on yeah. uh, last year. Was it for pitch tunneling or was it for 
for DRA. Uh, I for, but they rolled out a new stat package. We had them on the podcast. There's a lot of Ben and me. Well, <laughs> at least me going, oh, yeah, for sure, man. <laughs> <laughs> right. And the other thing I'll mention, because I asked Sean Foreman, the founder of Baseball Reference, about this, and there are kind of half measures you could take. So right now, the adjustment behind NOLA is just taking the team-wide, season-wide Phillies adjustment, and it's saying, well, he pitched this proportion of the Phillies innings, and so we're going to assign him this proportion of the Phillies sucking on defense, essentially. But you could try to get more granular, and you could take defensive runs saved and say, well, what was the defensive run saved when NOLA was on the mound? You can break it down that way. It's possible to do that. Of course, then you're getting into small samples, and as you were just saying, someone might appear to have a great defensive run saved behind him and really it's because he's allowing weak contact and it's easier opportunities for the fielders or who knows he's working more quickly or he inspires such confidence that the fielders are just on their game behind him whatever it is you're never going to really eliminate every possible complicating factor so you have to do the best you can and I think we're kind of in this in-between space right now where we know that we can do better than this because we have stat cast we have the angle and the batted ball of or the angle and the speed of every batted ball and in theory we should be able to build that into if not a perfect defensive system at least one that is a much closer approximation of perfect than the zone-based ones that we've been using from you know a decade ago up until now. And right now we haven't gotten to the point yet where those systems are fully implemented yet. And so we know there's something better, but we are still making do with something worse because it's what we've had. That's exactly where I wanted to go. And the, the last big, you know, maybe there are odds and ends we can pick up uh, after this, but this is the last big point I, I wanted to make is I think we're, we're at a point where the framework of zone-based defensive uh uh, defensive metrics is obsolete. It just doesn't. Right. First of all, up until Statcast, really, uh, there was a robust uh, public saber metrics movement where a lot of the cutting edge research was done at places like Baseball Prospectus or by freelancers or people with no affiliation whatsoever, because all of the data was publicly available either in box scores or on tape. Like what Baseball Info Solutions did. Uh, and I don't know if this is still what they do, but I had friends who worked there and this is how it worked then. They split the field up into a certain number of zones and for every batted ball, they tracked where the uh, the zone, where the, the mm-hmm. fielder made the play <laughs> and what kind of play. It was something like 81 different types of good or bad play and they fed all that into, you know, that was the data that they collected and it's mm-hmm. essentially just the eye test codified. And you can't do that anymore because- when all you needed was tape or all you needed was box score data, uh, then anybody could do it given enough time and commitment and resources. Now you need the actual stat cast. You need mm-hmm. actual tracking data. And we don't all have access to that. And it's just been this along with a lot of the, uh, a lot of the, the minds, you know, Tom Tango is a, one of the biggest examples of Examples of this, a lot of the biggest minds in public sabermetrics have gone to work for teams or the league. So not only is there mm-hmm. a little bit of brain drain, but we don't have access to the, the state of the art data that teams are using. And the way that Major League Baseball and MLBAM are packaging this, the stuff you see from StatCast, like it's fun, but they're making they're making trivia not making science, you know, mm-hmm. like the catch probability. There are all sorts of, of ways that this data is getting used and packaged. And, you know, to to illustrate 
how a cool looking play, you know, how difficult was this play actually to make it? It's, it's made into anecdotes and yeah. the plural of anecdote is not data. And right. so they've taken the approach of rolling it out in bits and pieces, I think, which from a, an entertainment and spectator and marketing perspective makes sense, but at times can be frustrating because you kind of want them to just dump the finished product on you and say, we've accounted for everything and here's what everyone's worth. I'd, <laughs> I'd honestly settle for not even the finished product. I'd settle for the data. I mean, uh-huh. that's, or that, and that's, that's the difference between, so if you look at it as the difference between saber, you know, baseball is commerce. Baseball is a, a television program, uh, essentially. It's an entertainment product. It's a for-profit, Major League Baseball is a, a for-profit entertainment company, and sabermetrics is a social science. And the the needs of those two philosophical constructs are not always in opposition, but they are in this case, where mm-hmm. the the kind of... of uh, of data and public accountability or public uh, um, public review that you would need to have something robust, even as robust as as the the early versions of war, mm-hmm. um, to be publicly vetted like that. You need more transparent transparency. That's the word I've been <laughs> stammering around for the past twenty five seconds. Yeah, well, uh, you need more would, transparency. Teams would prefer opacity. They would prefer exactly. complete opacity. Teams don't want any of this information out there. And it's in contrast to what happened with PitchFX, the previous technology that just tracked the pitch on its way to the plate. That was all free and all available. And really, that was because of a mistake. It was just kind of out there Mm -hmm. and analysts discovered it. And it was just kind of, you know, the cat's out of the bag. And And it was a bonanza for public sabermetrics. Yes, it was. And it was also beneficial to the the league and the teams in the long run, I think, because that information was vetted. and, And ultimately, all of the people who were doing the public analysis, it just became a a free-for-all where teams would just hire the best of those people. And it was just kind of a a tryout for those Mm -hmm. teams. But yes, we're in a a different situation now. And it's partly because the StatCast data is just so enormous that it's hard to host it. And you and I wouldn't know what to do with it if it were handed to us on a platter. But Oh, yeah. (laughs) Let's not pretend that that we know how to make heads or tails, but like guys like like I know Harry would know how to yeah. make heads or tails or right. you know, I know dozens of people who would be able to make sense of that data and maybe do maybe not do something better than what teams are doing, but do something better than the the really outdated and this is to go back to the original point, you know, in in the age of the shift, in the age of the swing plane revolution, our mm-hmm. our defensive metrics that we're using now are based on outdated assumptions. Yeah. And I don't know if we have good enough data to really keep up with the evolution of the game or to improve precision mm-hmm. to the level that I feel like is is expected, if not demanded by the, you know, by the serious baseball consuming public. Yeah. Along those lines, I was talking to a farm director yesterday for a book I'm working on, Early Plug, but he was talking about how we are seeing all these swing changers and pitch designers and players who are making rapid changes in their talent and performance. And our public projection systems that we rely on to tell us how good a player is and what he will do in the coming season are based on, well, what did he do in the past? What did he do the past three seasons? He'll probably do something like that again, just adjust it for age a little bit. And and that's what you want to see and expect to see. But that doesn't really hold if we're seeing more and more dramatic overhauls of player performance, because if a, a guy is just different because he has a different swing or a different pitch than he did yesterday, you can almost toss out the old stats and say he's not that guy anymore. So that's going to be an issue as well. But 
What I would say with all of these caveats that we're talking about, and the shift is a good one because as you mentioned with the zone-based defensive stats, what does a zone even mean anymore? Because you can't really- What do positions even mean? Right, exactly. Everyone's all over the place. So you can't really judge, well, compare this fielder to all the other fielders and how many plays in this section of the field did he make? Well, who knows how often he's even in that field, in that section of the field? Is he even in that position anymore? Everything is just wild. So- I think the thing I would say, though, is that even though we are throwing in all these caveats and reasons for skepticism, show me a better way, I guess, would be my Mm -hmm. challenge to someone who says that this is all invalid because of the things we're bringing up here. I think these are concerns that make sense to entertain and try to figure out ways to improve. But what is the better way? Is the better way to not adjust for anything and say, well, he's thrown a lot of innings or he hasn't allowed a lot of runs? I mean, those are good things, sure. But I think you're sacrificing complexity. You're also sacrificing accuracy there. So I don't think rolling things back to an earlier era is the solution either. I think we're just kind of in this awkward transitional phase. We're going through some growing pains where we know where we want to get, but we're not quite there, but we're better off than we were before. And there's, that's a great point. I I think that there's also a responsibility that some of this is just people see a number and they expect precision. And, you know, it's somebody you look you mentioned projection systems, like, you know, Dan Zimborski runs zips. Uh, You know, if you asked him, like, is this designed to to project how, you know, I'm writing about Matt Carpenter. He's changed his approach or his swing God knows how many times. You know, how is Zip supposed to deal with something like that? And it's really not. Like, it's not that tool. It requires, like, a level of informed use, sort of responsible use. All of these tools do. You know, if you're a writer or even a fan or, you know, just trying to win your fantasy league, you know, God willing, you're not in Zach Cram's fantasy league, <laughs> um, you're you're going to need to know which tool, you know, it's tool is actually a great word for this because you reach into a toolbox, you know, when to use a hammer, when to use a screwdriver, when to use mm-hmm. pliers, you know, and, and these numbers, I don't think any of them get it, get it perfect. But if you know what you're looking at, and it's not that hard to, to get to a level of, ex- of expertise with this stuff, if you know what you're looking at, you know, the strengths and weaknesses of various stats, various uh, approaches to the game. And like, you know, I don't think that we'd want a, consensus runs a lot of base pitcher war mm-hmm. if it means the exclusion of some kind of uh of era estimator you know i think i i think baseball prospectus does it better than fan graphs um which is why i use warp for pitchers over uh instead of uh fan graphs war but you want to have both of those tools in your arsenal because one of them is going to be better for for a certain use so mm-hmm. it's you know it's not something you can just pick up and drive but it's not that hard to learn how to really understand all the stuff, what goes into um, all these, you know, on a basic philosophical level, even if you can't do the math yourself, what goes into these numbers and what their their various strengths and weaknesses are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think we're never going to get to a a perfect estimate of a player's talent or projection of his performance. And if that's the expectation, like that's just not, that's not the conversation we're having. Yeah. But I think it probably would blow some people's minds to know where the most advanced teams are when it comes to projecting performance, because I think they have incorporated of these very granular, sensitive metrics into their projections so that if a guy does develop a new pitch, well, we know that 
because we have the data that says he does. And then you can look and say, well, is it a good pitch based on its characteristics? Does it move a lot? Does it go fast? Does it have a high spin rate? Well, let's compare it to all these other pitchers who throw similar pitches. How does it work for them? And then we can incorporate it into our projection for this pitcher who just added that pitch. Or you can do the same thing for a hitter. And you know, maybe you jump the gun a little bit at times if a guy makes a change and then isn't able to sustain that change. But I think you can have kind of a a moment-to-moment representation of how good a guy is in a way that we don't really in the public sphere. And a lot of people are fine with that because they just want to watch the games and they don't really care whether we are estimating their outcomes more accurately or not. And And that's that's fine fine too. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. We should... I was going to say, someone should hack ground control and just release (laughs) all this stuff. Yeah, been there, done that. Yeah. Well, we didn't get to see all the cool stuff. We just got to to see trade discussions. That's, I mean, that's interesting, but like, you know, I want to see what the, you know, and and I have no idea what the state of the art is, Mm -hmm. much less, uh, you know, people who are just watching the game. So it's, it was cool to sort to see all this evolve firsthand when it was all public. Um, And I, it's, you know, on, on some level, like I don't really need anything that much better than what we've, you know, I don't need anything better than what we've got right now publicly to do my job well, mm-hmm. but it would be, it's, it's just a bummer to see all this sort of taken behind the curtain, not, and not to, to have these debates, have this progress sort of play out where everybody could see it. Cause that was a, a really cool time to be following baseball and yeah. sabermetrics. In a way, each additional level of detail that we get makes the job harder. Not that I'm saying mm-hmm. pity the poor writers. I'm just saying that if you're making any argument about baseball these days and you care about being as accurate as you can be, then you have to drill down deeper and deeper to get to the heart of the matter or as close to the heart as you can get. It's not enough to say, well, he has a high BABIP. You have to then say, well, why does mm-hmm. he have a high BABIP? Is he leaving his pitches over the plate? Is he allowing hard contact? And if he is, is that the sort of thing that can be sustained? I mean, there's just always another level, uh, kind of a, another you know, level of zoom on the microscope that we have at there our disposal was- now. Uh, hockey, you and I did an effectively wild episode years and years ago about hockey going through yeah. its fancy stats revolution. Um, there was a hockey writer who who put it in so many words, like the the old school writer backlash or front office or, or pundit backlash to the numbers wasn't that they thought that they were Ill, illegitimate. It's just that, man, this is, you know, I haven't had to change the way I looked at the <laughs> yeah. game in 30 years. Yeah. And now, like, I have to learn this yeah, or else I'm like going to fall behind the time. Continuing education so, course. Yeah, it's, it's a hassle. And, and like... That's entirely understandable because learning new stuff sucks. Yeah, and but, sports are supposed to be fun. And yeah. if you don't want to watch them that way, that's okay. Yeah, but it, I mean, that is sort of the crux. And it, it's, you know, funny. It's not funny, but it's ironic to see our generation of, of uh, statty writers sort of faced with that same yeah. that same issue that now, you know, we got to learn all this stuff. Yeah, well, I, now I we've got we, up and comers like Cram who know even more than we do. <sighs> got to stay on our toes. That's... I'm funnier than he is. I'll always have that. You develop a sense of humor as you age. He'll get there. Oh, if he if he develops a sense of humor, we're all screwed. All right, we will uh, pick. A, I'm sure we'll we'll have more thoughts on this conversation in the the months to come. But I hope this was not too uh, inscrutable for for the listeners. I, I know so we're too. supposed to be accessible, but like this is this is one of this is legitimately one of the most interesting things that's going on in, yeah. in baseball, apart from. The pennant race, you you know, you look for big trend stories, and and this is one of the big trend stories. Is the inadequacy of a lot of the 
the stats that we've come to take for granted over the past decade. Mm-hmm. So got to get wonky every now and then. Yeah. Yeah. Every so often. We don't need to do this every week, but you know. <laughs> All right. We'll do something we else next week. On. All right. Yeah. We're going to, we're going to be as basic as we can possibly get. But. <laughs> okay. All right. We'll talk to you then. Bye. That'll do it for this week's edition of the Ringer MLB show. Thanks to Zach Cram and Ben Lindbergh for joining me today. Uh, thanks to Jose Altuve and Aaron Nola for providing us with content uh, this episode. Thanks to Bobby Wagner and Jim Cunningham for producing this show. And thank you for listening. Enjoy the week's action and we'll see you next time.